Welcome to the Dublin City Public Libraries and Archives podcast. In this episode, Elizabeth Smith discusses how Belgrave Square in Rathmines can be viewed as a microcosm of Victorian Dublin, recorded at the Council Chamber City Hall on the 26th of August 2017 as part of Living in Victorian Dublin, Dublin City Archives Heritage Week seminar. Thank you. As you can see, I'm going to talk about Belgrave Square. And I think in a way it's going to fit in nicely in between the two talks, one by Susan on the bourgeois houses in Dublin and the other on the slums. Not that any of the houses in Belgrave Square is a slum, but they certainly aren't as elegant or as fine in general as the ones we saw on Northumberland Road. At the beginning of the 19th century, as we have already learned, Rathmines was in quite a rural area. There were several market gardens in the area. This is Portobello Barracks here. Uh, there were some, some housing along the uh, east side of Rathmines Road, but then when you come down to roughly where Belgrave Square is, there's really there's no houses at all, it's just fields. You have here an important pathway which led from the city to Milltown, where there were many mills, so there was a lot of traffic there. By 1837, Samuel Lewis described Rathmines as a considerable village and suburb of Dublin, containing 1,600 inhabitants. Twelve years since, Rathmines was only known as an obscure village. It now forms a fine suburb, commencing at Portobello Bridge and extending in a continued line of handsome houses with some pretty detached villas for about one mile and a half. Here again, this is Rathmines Road along here, and there's the terraced housing on the east side and the villas on the left-hand side. One of those houses is um, Lisson Field, I think it's this one up here, which, no, it's right up to the Catholic Church. Uh, it's now apartments, but it used to be a, a sort of attached to Portobello Barracks and it used to be the residence of General Mulcahy. But if you continue on down to uh, Castlewood Avenue, you can see there's virtually no housing at all on it. This field is, Bel is the future Belgrave Square. There are two houses on Castlewood Avenue, one called Castlewood Lodge and the other one called Castlewood House. This was to become the home of John Holmes, who was um, a future uh, developer in Belgrave Square and the eventual owner of the square itself. I'm calling it Belgrave Square, but in those days it wasn't called Belgrave Square. It wasn't even designated as a square. It just sort of seemed to evolve into a square. And it wasn't until the 1860s that it was officially called Belgrave Square, but I'm still going to call it Belgrave Square for the uh, for the purpose of this exercise. Further evidence of the growth of Rathmines was the establishment of the Rathmines Town Commission in 1847. A meeting was held in Portobello Hotel about the provision of water to Rathmines by the corporation. The people were very dissatisfied with the provision of water. So an inquiry was set up Frederick Stokes and Terence Dolan, both substantial landowners in the area, supported the establishment of a township and had prepared very good arguments. 
the opposition were not so well prepared. So it was agreed to uh, form a township and in 1847 Rathmines Township was created by Act of Parliament and the Rathmines Board of Commissioners was established with Frederick Stokes as its chairman. He remained its chairman for many years afterwards. In his book, Dublin Suburban Towns, Dr Seamus O'Matthew notes that some large landowners gave very long leases on small acreages which led to land speculation. I quote, on the city's boundary, the most promising area for the activities of speculative property developers was Rathmines and the adjoining districts. Unlike Pembroke to the east, most of the land of Rathmines was in the hands of small owners as the Meath estate had leased property on very long leases, sometimes up to 999 years in the preceding century and a half. The earliest registers in the Registry of Deeds in Dublin showed that much of the land in Rathmines was changing hands in small acreages in the early 18th century. However, because the land was held by lessees on such long leases, the interest of the Meath estate in the area was minimal. The absence of a large landowner controlling the supply of land made Rathmines ideal for the speculative builder. I'm just returning to the map, the Earl of Meath's map, and this shows the Earl of Meath's property. The dark line here shows the limits of his, uh, of, of his uh, land. Belgrave Square <coughs> is, oh, I think, where is Belgrave Square? Belgrave Square is, is roughly here. This would be the northern end, if you like, of Belgrave Square. So the Earl of Mead, Mead owned the, the southern, about one third of Belgrave Square. One of the earliest leases relating to the area was granted on the 23rd of April in 1842 by James Twigg, who owned the, all the fields. It was called Field Number no. 5, in fact. He uh, leased it to John Jones of Marlborough Street. He was the lessee of two building plots, each with the frontage of 100 feet along the new road made by James Twigg, later known as Kensington Terrace. Can you see that? It's not very clear. But if you're passing by Belgrave Square, it's still there. It's getting more and more weather-beaten, but it's still there. And this was the original name of this terrace, it was called Kensington Terrace. So John Jones built two terraces of five houses on these plots. That's one of, one of the uh, terraces there. Um, he, he himself, he, uh, he died in 1879. By then he had disposed of his interest in all of these properties, except for these particular houses on this slide, numbers 53 to 58. He had married a widow called Mary Church, who had three daughters, and she inherited the properties on his death and lived with her three daughters in number 57 Belgrave Square. That's the black and white door there. The family drew rents from the other four houses until the death of John Jones' last stepdaughter in 1940, and then the five houses were passed to North American heirs who sold them in 1941. On March uh, the 28th, 1844, John Jones leased more land from James Twigg on the western side of the square. It was these houses here were built 
on, on that site. And you notice that they are very similar to the ones on the, on the Kensington Terrace. This, at the beginning, was called Kensington Place. But the least importantly, for my purposes, also included the northern and larger portion of the actual square, approximately two-thirds of the area, as well as, this, as these building sites on the west side. So there were further sub-leases, which detailed further transactions between John Jones and another large landowner, uh, John Holmes. Uh, a sublease uh, in March 1850 concerns, I quote, the piece of building land situating the townland of Rathmines, bounded on the north side by houses known as Kensington Terrace, on the south by ground belonging to the said John Jones, on which ground is intended to be formed into a square, but for the laying out or formation of which square the said John Jones is to be at no expense. This is actually the first mention of a square, but considering that he built the second row of houses at right angles to the first, he obviously knew from the very beginning that if he was building around a square. The first uh, reference to Kensington Place is 1849. That's the first reference in Tom's directory. And as I live in one of these houses, I can tell you what the inside of it is like. And they're quite as simple houses. Uh, there are two rooms on each floor. That's on the, if you like, the hall floor and the first floor. There's a return at the back. And then downstairs, as Susan pointed out in the grander houses, there were more rooms downstairs than there were on the uh, upper floors. And these were the domain of the servants as well. Um, in the uh, back uh, of the back room under in the return was where all the bells were. In our house, we have still got the um, you know the, the knobs, I suppose, for the bells beside each fireplace. Unfortunately, well, fortunately, I suppose they don't work uh, at all. But they, they didn't work. But the bells were still there when we bought the house, and yet again. Uh, uh, sanitation comes into it. There was a toilet in the house when we bought it, but there was also a toilet outside, which was the original toilet. And we do have, um, you know, a cover at the top of the steps uh, for, you know, the coal. So the coal hole was under uh, under the steps. Downstairs as well, there was all, there were two fairly substantial rooms, you know, relatively substantial. Um, but there was also a pantry, so you had two, two rooms. And when we bought the house, there was a, a, a large range in one of the rooms, so I presume that there was some cooking done there. So the bride and groom must have arrived, I think. Um, <laughs> so um, they're, they're, they're simple houses, uh, but they have uh, on the uh, hall and upper floor, they have quite high ceilings. So I think sometimes they're a bit deceptive. People think they're large houses, but they're not. You can't see it very well in this photograph, but they all have very nice, well, simple but nice fan lights. And it's details like this, I think, that for me make up the charm of these houses. And we have marble fireplaces as well. We did have sash windows, but alas, when we bought the house, we just had to get plain windows in 
you know, nowadays you can get sash windows, uh, very, very good replacement sash windows, but they, uh, that wasn't possible then. So, moving on, I'm sort of moving chronologically through Belgrave Square. So, I'm actually going to backtrack round. This, this house here is right beside the first houses built by John Jones, but they were built uh, a bit later. This first house here was built by a man called Graves Holbrook. Graves Holbrook also built a row of houses, a terrace of houses, if you turn the corner onto the east side of the square. But just on passant, I couldn't get a good shot of them. But the, this little terrace of houses down here was also built by John Jones. And they are to this day called Kensington Villas. This is Kensington Villas, Upper Rathmines Road. So John Jones built on that plot as well. If you could look back to the Graves Holbrook house, I'd like you to especially notice the fanlight, which is very distinctive. Uh, it's, it's sort of plain, but it has a nice band of coloured glass, red glass, around it. Now, if we turn the corner, I want to show you these ones first. These houses here are also built by Graves Holbrook. Graves Holbrook, Holbrook was a timber merchant, and he had extensive property interests as well. So uh, I think which somebody mentioned already that the timber merchant could get his materials at cost, so you can see why he was a developer. But have you noticed the variety of houses already on Belgrave Square, which is the sure sign of speculative building? They bought small lots and built two, three, four or five houses on them. So these are Graves Holbrook houses. And when we move on, we come to the first of Hugh Morrison's houses. Hugh Morrison became one of the most important developers in Belgrave Square. He this is the east side of Belgrave Square. He built from number 7 to about number 19 Belgrave Square, and then he also built houses across the south of the square. He also owned land uh, on the south of the square and on the east of the square. This house, 7 Belgrave Square, was his own house. He had four daughters, and as each daughter got married, he settled a house on them, or one or two houses on them. But he also said he left, the, he expressly stated that number 7 and 8 Belgrave Square were left in trust to his fifth daughter, Martha Pedlow Morrison, spinster. And it was to be free from the debts, engagement, or control of any husband. <laughs> and she was to be given any profit from the rents after all payments for repairs and insurance policies, and if she married. So, as well as that, he also bequeathed houses uh, on this side, that's the east side, south side, and some houses on the west side to his son and two sons-in-law, because and they became trustees of a family trust. What happened next was, he also built these houses. This is one of the few semi-detached houses on Belgrave Square. They were mainly in terraces. And this now is on the south, on the south side of the square. Hugh Morrison actually built these two houses at the beginning, or the three houses actually, from 20 to 22. And he leased this terrace, which was known as Fife's Terrace, to a man called Henry Pete. 
and he had very strict conditions. The houses were to be set back, I think it was 10 feet from the road, and they were to be made of brick and uh, so on. He, he was very strict about the, the type of houses that he wanted. He, then if you go, there's a little cul-de-sac here, and this um, is also built by Hugh Morrison. Some of the houses here are built by Hugh Morrison. Most of them, in fact, are built by Hugh Morrison. But the interesting thing about them, I should have taken these photographs in winter when there weren't so many leaves on the trees. I've learned that lesson at any rate. But the interesting thing about these houses is that they are all uh, just two-storey houses. And these were one of some of the later houses. They would have been built probably in the early 60s, 1860s. And from the talk earlier today uh, about that law coming in about not allowing cellar houses, perhaps this is the reason that they were built. And although they're only, if you like, two-storey houses, they are quite substantial. And um, sometimes I think they'd be easier to manage than the three-storey house, you know. And they have, for example, four bedrooms, um, which in the house that I live in, the three-storey house, we actually only started off with two bedrooms up, you know, on the top floor. So this was Hugh Morrison again. And these two houses were among the houses he gave to the family trust. And they have an interesting um, history in the sense that they were sold, <coughs> Hugh Morrison sold them, sold the, the lease the ground to a man called Edward Kelly, who was a grocer in Camden Street. And Edward Kelly took out a mortgage of £700, but unfortunately he went bankrupt. And so the next thing is there's, uh, you know, advertisements in the paper for two unfinished houses on Belgrave Square, which were bought, uh, you know, by a family called Burke. Uh, but as you can see, they are fine houses, but they are not as deep as other houses. They really have a room and a half. They're a room and a half deep. Although they're double fronted, they aren't as deep as the houses that have, have only got, um, you know, a single front, if you like. So if you, uh, these, uh, this is an example of some of the other types of houses on Belgrave Square. Some of, if you like, the unique houses. This house is at the beginning of Belgrave Place, that little cul-de-sac. And it is, the, um, it is built on uh, two building plots. Again, it was on land owned by Hugh Morrison, and he leased it to a man called Thomas Goodwillie, who built this house. This house is number 19, Belgrave Square, and this, it's, it's a, a detached house, quite large, and for many years it was the residence of the minister of Holy Trinity Church, which is just around the corner from here. And these two houses, about which I know lamentably little, but as you can see, they're both very unique as villa houses. These are on the north side uh, of Belgrave Square, which is um, Castlewood Avenue now. Now, when Hugh Morrison was developing the south side of the square, he petitioned the commissioners to allow him to label it Belgrave Square. Because what happened was, in April 1852, the commissioners voted £80 for the purpose of improving Harold's Cross Green, on condition that the inhabitants subscribed £40. Um, the committee 
Then they, put, they had a, a deputation of Belgrave Square residents. And so the committee appointed to confer with the interested parties um, to, in the formation of a new square at Belgrave and Castlewood Avenue met the following deputation, Messrs Scott, Morrison, Dean, Carson, Holmes and Holbrook. And they submitted the following report. You notice there are names there that I've mentioned already. And the name I haven't mentioned is Carson. But Carson is the father of, um, of is it Ed Edward Carson? And he owned land just beyond Belgrave Square, where Belgrave Road is now. So he was also interested in the area. So however, the, the, the greatest difficulty, to continue the report, the greatest difficulty which presents itself to the committee is the annual rent, which is £30, and the future maintenance, which they calculate at the lowest, £40 yearly, making £70 yearly to be provided for. This, the deputation suggests, might be raised by the rent of admission keys, but the committee are of opinion that the commissioners have not the power to contribute towards the work unless it be a place for public resort. The committee feel that the formation of squares would be a great improvement to the township and should receive prudent support from the commissioners, but from the importance of the subject and the difficulties which appear in the present case, they refer it to the consideration of the board with the above statement. Now, this was in 1852, but the commissioners don't, did, didn't make a decision about that because four years later, they received a letter from Hugh Morrison, which he stated he had commenced building three houses on the south side of Belgrave Avenue, which he intended carrying out as a square and requested the board would permit him to have it called Belgrave Square and have it labelled accordingly. But the secretary was instructed to suggest to him to get a memorial for, to the board from the owners of the property in the neighbourhood when, quote, permission would be granted. And six weeks later, on the 10th of September, 1856, Belgrave Square finally got um, official sanction. So it, it was 10 years from the time the first house was built until it was, until it was actually called Belgrave Square. And it was only subsequently that they actually renumbered the houses. Because up to then, you had numbers, you know, 1 to 10, Kensington Terrace, numbers 1 to 6, Kensington Place, etc., etc., which was very confusing. So it was about 20 years later that they actually got round to numbering it. And there, it's from number 1, which is on the east side of the square, one of the Graves Holbrook houses, right down to number 60, which is the sort of odd Graves Holbrook house by itself. So 1857 sees the first entry of the name Belgrave Square in Tom's directory. Um, it's not clear if the Rathmines Town Commissioners ever took responsibility for Belgrave Square. When High School purchased the square in 1897, the vendor was John Holmes. Now, I've mentioned John Holmes a few times, and he really was quite an important landowner in that area. He actually was the builder of all the houses, all the later houses on the west side, um, the ones up to the John Jones house, between the Morrison house and the John Jones house. He, he was the builder of those houses. So 
George O'Kelly states that the commissioners and the speculators had several disputes about paying the cost of railing the square. Eventually, railings were erected on the northern two-thirds of the square, but not on the southern part, the area which was originally leased from the Earl of Meath, although Hugh Morrison was the actual leaseholder from the mid-1850s. To this day, that bottom third of Belgrave Square has, has not got railings on it. It has a wall. Now, the, if you look at it, the, at the very southern end of the square, the, it's a half wall with railings on top of it, but there's actually a wall all around it. So we then have a lovely drawing of um, <coughs> Belgrave Square. This drawing was done in 1896 by John Holmes, Jr. He was an architect. By this stage, he had inherited this ground and he, uh, he had, had acquired uh, he, the whole of Belgrave Square. As you can see here, it's written on it, uh, John Jones to um, John Holmes. Do you remember John Jones who owned these houses over here, the first four houses over here? John Jones sold the leasehold to John Holmes and then Hugh Morrison, who had acquired it, but originally was the Earl of Meath, Hugh Morrison sold to John Holmes as well. You notice on the, the map, is, this is beautiful looking landscaping, but I don't think this ever happened. But a very, an interesting thing to notice on the map is this line here, because what's written there is a, a, a river, a covered river, running water, I think, covered. That's a tributary or the Swan River. I think it's a tributary of the Swan River. And as you can see, it's running right across Belgrave Square. <clears throat> and the same thing, if you look at Belgrave Square today, there are two levels. And the, the bank of the river, as it were, is uh, where the higher level is. So you notice that all, right around, this is now in 1896. This is an 1896 drawing. But already in 1866, this was more or less the scene. There are houses built all around the square. There is only one vacant site up here, a vacant site for two um, houses. This is Belgrave Place here. There's one interesting feature here. You notice these two houses are hatched in red, and these belong to John Jones. Now, the, the leasehold of these houses was tied in with this bottom part, or the northern part, if you like, of Belgrave Square. And the owner of number 42, Belgrave Square, up to recent times in my day living there, collected ground rents from the other houses, the other Jones houses on Belgrave Square, plus the ground rent of, of, of the actual square itself. And I think it was really only when, uh, well, when, when, when there was that problem with Dartmouth Square, where an individual, I think, acquired the leasehold, that the corporation decided it was time to buy that, uh, you know, that grand rent from the person who held it. And that was, that was only done within the last 10 years. You know, it, it went on and on and on. So, why did John Holmes do this drawing? Because he wanted to sell the square. By the late 1890s, Belgrade Square, square had fallen into disrepair. You can see this uh, 
postcard here where it's, this is actually titled at the tram in Belgrave Square. You can see the tram, that's going along the northern side. But you can see, generally speaking, there's very little happening in Belgrave Square. It is far from the beautifully landscaped um, drawing that we saw. But, so it was, had fallen into disrepair. And um, th this was, uh, the public were getting quite annoyed about it being, you know, uh, so neglected. So um, it, th there, in, there was an article in a paper called the Rathmines News and City Lantern, and it suggests that the square was in private hands and that the ratepayers wanted the commissioners to take steps to acquire the plot of ground and convert it into a public park because in its present state it is no credit to the township with its unkempt grass full of thistles and weeds which have been distributing their seeds in a liberal manner during the past season. The fences appear to be getting into a bad condition and the cost of converting the ground into a public park could not be very considerable as it is at present enclosed by railings in the extent of about three-fourths of its boundaries and furnished with some well-grown trees. We can't see too many of the well-grown trees there. So <clears throat> John Holmes, uh, who was, who in, in 1897, he wrote to the governors of the Erasmus Smith School, that's high school. Uh, high school is an Erasmus Smith School and it was in Harcourt Street originally. You know where the guard, the big guard, the building is on Harcourt Street? But um, they had no playing grounds there. So they used Belgrave Square as playing grounds. <clears throat> but as you can see, until 1896, 1897, they, they didn't own it. So John Holmes wrote to them in 1897, and he expressed a wish to sell the square to them since they had been lessees and paid rent to him. His price was £175, which is considerably less, he says, than I have expended in building the lodge and erecting fences. I hold the premises under two leases, one for an unexpired term of 245 years at £36 per annum and the other for over 900 years at a nominal rent of one shilling per annum, if demanded, which it has never been. So it seems that John Holmes and not the Rathmines commissioners uh, were responsible for the maintenance of the square. So you have seen the drawing of the, of the square and the actual drawing of the square uh, coincides with more or less the Ordnance Survey map in 1911. One further building was built um, in between uh, 96 and 1911 and it was here and it was a parochial hall for Holy Trinity Church but that was subsequently demolished in about the 1960s and instead there's a, lar there's a large block of apartments with some terraced housing at the back. In fact all the houses around Belgrave Square are more or less as they were in Victorian times with the exception of this apartment block here and with the exception of um, round about here a house was demolished and ground was acquired from the back gardens round this area and there's again an apartment complex several um, blocks but they're low-rise blocks of apartments in here but apart from that 
the square is as it was in approximately um, 1860. So um, you can see the names of the various owners on that drawing and High School did buy Belgrave Square and there it is there and you can see the pavilion there. It was used uh, as a sports ground until um, about 1860 I think. Uh, they used, yes, 1860 because in 1860 they moved up to very big uh, premises in Rathgar. They had 23 acres so they had plenty of playing fields. Uh, but during all that time it, that, nobody was allowed into the square. The people who lived, the residents who lived there weren't allowed in and that pavilion was a, a sort of, besides being a pavilion for changing and everything, it was also a caretaker's residence. And uh, the caretaker wouldn't, you know, if any children went to play in or ran in for a dare, he, he chased them out. So, and it was just a lot later on in the 1960s, uh, as I said, high school left, they were, then the grounds were taken by diocesan school for girls, but just for 10 years, because then they joined uh, high school in Rathgar, and ultimately the corporation bought it from, by now it was the Church of Ireland owned it, and they bought it from the Church of Ireland, and it finally became a public square, uh, which it was always intended to be, but it finally became a public square in about 1970. So, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Dublin City Public Libraries and Archives podcast. To hear more, please subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also visit our website, dublincitypubliclibraries.ie, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.